Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. In this great American experiment. We'll be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together. To debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Deputy Opinion Editor at Newsweek, Batia Unger Sargon, next on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco. Hey everybody, welcome back to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. I'm Jason Nichols. That is again fake Matthew McConaughey with me today. All right, Vince all right, is all right. out. Uh, <laughs> so we have got uh, Bradley Cooper doing his fake uh, working class guy mustache on. <laughs> but never mind it about him. We have a really, really compelling guest today. I'm really. Uh, interested and excited to talk to her, Batia Unger Sargon. I hope I said your name correctly, Batia. You said it perfectly, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. And let me tell you, uh, I just had to say this um, to, to Richie, you know, I, I am a sucker for being charmed. I can definitely be charmed. It's my weakness as, as a journalist and Batia has already charmed me. So, <laughs> you know, I already put my strap away. You know, so you're gonna have to because I was I was kind of ready, you know. All right, so I'll be the one. All the woke talk and all that. I was like, all right, I'm ready to <laughs> take it to her, but you know, because I and and let me just say this as a person on the Daily Caller, uh, or Daily Caller sponsored podcast, um, I don't get a lot of love. So when I get some, you know what I mean, I it definitely can charm me. Those comment um, sections are not nice to Jason. I that much I can definitely. Yeah, I don't read the comments, comment. but. Right, so Jason gets it from the left who can't stand when lefties engage with the right. And then he gets it from the right because he's on the left. So you're, Jason, you're the hero here. And yeah. <laughs> I just want to say, you know, I, I, I'm kind of like at this point, I love debate. And I, I think honestly, this show, what you guys are doing here, it's God's work. Like this is the stuff that built our nation and that's going to save our nation. But also like, just from a personal level, it's like, I'm so sick of talking to people I agree with. So all of which is just to say, bring it on, man. Like I, I you know what I mean? Like, don't, no hold bar, don't hold back. Like that's the whole point of this show. And I'm so down with it. And also so glad Glad to be here well as long as you don't log out after eight minutes like like one of our political guests did i won't say are you name, serious but, yeah oh they, my god they couldn't take couldn't take the heat and we they weren't even really 30 yeah and they really weren't we really weren't like the interesting oh thing about god. our show is that we are not mean to people yeah. like that's we don't Except me you guys are mean to me well, yeah we're mean to you but <laughs> Uh, we're meaning you, but I, everyone else, um, you know, we are very respectful and, um, you know, I don't know, some people just don't like being disagreed with and, you know, that's the way Terrible. it works out. So I'm, I'm really glad that you are open to that. And I, and I actually yeah. recently read one of your opinion pieces mm -hmm. and even where I disagree with you, I, I can definitely say that there's a reason that you are a deputy editor at Newsweek, and I will be sending you pieces from now yes! on. Yes, <laughs> yes, good. Um, I, you know, so I read this opinion piece where you stated that the left doesn't understand that marriage is an economic issue, and it's mm -hmm. not just a culture war issue. Mm -hmm. Now, um, 
Now, is that is that a, a correct summary of, of what your piece said? And can you just like go in and explain that? Yeah, totally. Bit? I think so much of what we call culture war issues are actually about class. Um, so for example, let's take the parental rights and education bill out of Florida, right? That looks like it's about culture war issues, LGBTQ rights, but actually it's about public school parents, right? Who tend to be middle-class and working-class parents who tend to have, you know, working-class people, middle-class people who haven't gone to fancy universities tend to still believe things like, oh, I don't know, there's a difference between men and women or that we should all strive to live in a colorblind society, right? These are sort of commonsensical views that are very prevalent in the working class and increasingly alien to the, to the elites. And so you take an issue like the parental rights and education bill, the leftist elites try to tell you this is a culture war issue right they're trying to penalize being gay when the truth of the matter is is that it's a class issue it's about parents working class middle class parents wanting to have some level of autonomy some level of say over their child's education and i think there's so many issues that are like that but um marriage is another one where the left tells us like oh it's this antiquated you know institution that uh you know is bad for women it's bad for gay people right it's this kind of they yeah. turn it it's his culture war battle, but actually being married gives you a huge economic benefit. So I'll just give you one statistic, yeah. which is that um, the median income for a black man in America who's not married is $35,000 a year. The median income for a black man in America who is married is $90,000 a year, which is actually $40,000 a year more than the median income of a white male in America. So there, there is a, I'm just trying to say like, there's like an economic and class component component to marriage, to a lot of the things that we consider to be culture war issues, that it is very much in the benefit of the liberal elites to erase that class component and make it sound like it's about culture. So again, uh, one of the things that you do acknowledge in your piece is that causation is not correlation. You totally, know, that, totally. You know, that totally. a lot of times, and, and again, yeah. if you know William Julius Wilson's work about the marriageable male index and about uh, the the types of men who get married, particularly within certain communities, are usually people who are high earners anyway. Mm -hmm. But I, I will say this, isn't it the left that fought for the expansion of marriage rights? So wouldn't that be them fighting for those economic rights for more people? So um, I understand what you're saying about marriage being beneficial economically. I agree with that. I know you, you were saying you know, I think your argument in, in other pieces that you've written um, seems to be against the move towards, so I, I don't want to state this incorrectly, but it, it sounds like you believe, and I think most people would agree with you, and I would agree with you, that you should be able to take care of a family on one income. Um, but it's, you know, financially, it's going to help you if you have two incomes, you know? Yeah, don't I mean? tell my girlfriend that. <laughs> yeah, hey, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I was pretty proud. We we made it for a while on one income, but we lived a very you know, different yeah. lifestyle on one income. But point being, um, how is the left ignoring this? And, and yeah. particularly when we're talking about the expansion of marriage rights, I'll just yeah. include the fact that LGBT people of color, since you wanted to bring race into it, um, LGBT people of color are more likely to be poor than whites and heterosexual people of color. So expanding those marriage rights is, wouldn't that be a recognition 
of the value of the institution broadly and of its economic value? Yeah, and remember there was this, actually there was a divide within the LGBT community around the <laughs> issue of um, marriage equality because you had a lot of gay people pushing for the right to get married and then a lot of gay people being like, our, the whole purpose of what we represent is to be sort of orthogonal to marriage, to be like, no, like those institutions don't matter. Of course, um, expanding equal protections to all Americans is important. And yes, I totally agree that has been traditionally associated with the left. For decades, the left represented civil rights, gay rights, um, you know, police reform, right? Ending mass incarceration, like a lot of things that are extremely objectively important things. The values this nation was founded on for many decades, for centuries, the left represented the expansion of those rights in a really important way. What happened was, is they won all the battles, okay? They won the battle for marriage equality. They won the battle on racism, right? They won the battles. Now there is no longer a partisan divide about whether racism is bad, right? There's no longer a partisan divide about marriage equality, really 60% of Republicans support marriage equality, yeah. okay? That's as near as a consensus as you can hope for. And it's astonishing in 15 years what they achieved. There's no longer a partisan divide about the civil rights issues. Those battles have been <coughs> won. What they're doing now is they are moving the goalpost to a place where it's just completely niche and marginal. So I totally agree with you. Expanding yeah. those rights were really important. Um, I will say, I you, you, so, so to the to the single income point. Um, Elizabeth Warren, you know, wrote a book yeah. called The Two Income Trap. Yeah. It's the most amazing book. Um, Tucker Carlson has cited that book as one of the best books he's ever read. Yeah. That book is deeply conservative. And yeah, I, no, I, but I think she it's was totally a Republican until 1996. She was a Republican. She was a Republican. Yeah. I think she was totally right. I think the left position should be to get women out of the workforce. Like that mm -hmm. should be the left position because the American dream was that you can raise a family on a single income and you can have upward mobility for your kids. We have lost that in the name of feminism. Now, of course, I'm a feminist. I have a job. I'm very happy be, you know, with my job. I would be miserable as a stay-at-home mom. But we have taken away the choice, which was supposed yeah. to be the feminist ideal and the feminist dream. And we have made it impossible because of that sort of getting women into the workforce, we've made it impossible for a man to support his family, which I just, to me, that again, like culture and class, they're so intertwined. And I think that, that, that that's the decimation of the American working class that we've seen over the last 40 years. And both sides are totally responsible for that. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with a lot of what you said, um, that where, where we have an issue, uh, and I think we have a disagreement is, the, and I think, honestly, it's kind of weird because I think you're giving the left way too much credit. The idea <laughs> that they won all the battles, like, is... I mean, Jason, I can we, can we I, at I least say that, like, mass... Like, if you look at the... Police reform, like, you mentioned police reform. We haven't won. We haven't won that battle. Oh, well, we and, haven't. And, and, we haven't. Look at the we haven't won the battle. Even on mass incarceration, we haven't won that me, battle. So, so let me defend those 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 positions. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Racism. Yeah, I don't yeah. think we've won. Yeah, we've great. Certainly, you and I, of course, we are going to disagree on race and and the importance of race, um, and racism. I think we have a different idea of the construction of racism. I think you think of it from an individual perspective, which is one form of racism, and I think of it from an institutional and systemic uh, situation where 
things from the past can actually affect the future, like redlining and things like that. I, I totally agree with that. I, I totally, so, okay. Uh, so, sorry, finish. I don't want to interrupt you. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go okay, ahead. All right, all right. We're interviewing so you. I, not I, okay. <laughs> I totally agree. I think that there are um, four remaining areas where um, the American government is still involved in state-sponsored racism, but it's only against Blacks. So th this is my problem with the way the left thinks about race. They've overgeneralized the problem. So there are, America is not a white supremacy anymore. You can be not white, you could be Jewish, you could be Asian, you could be Hispanic. There are many non-white people that America guarantees the American dream to today. Not guarantees, but has no and, and actually, sponsored. Statistics show like Indians, you know, or- Indians uh, are doing better. Nigerian Americans are earning more than white exactly. Americans. Yeah, that, so, there's so, there's a lot that goes into that. Okay, but, okay. but anyway, go so, ahead, go so, ahead. So my, my uh -oh, point that, is yeah, that- the Nigerian Americans, Jason gets, gets, he gets very- uh, there is, There's a specific <laughs> community that we have historically um, denied equal protections before the law and continue to, to because of state-sponsored reasons, deprive equal access to the American dream. I think there's four remaining areas. I would say it's- um, um, police brutality, right? That's been shown um, um, and mass incarceration. Um, um, e um, public schooling is segregated by race, essentially, especially in the North, especially in liberal cities. Um, and then intergenerational poverty among 20 to 30% of Americans descended from slaves. That Those problems are not issues with like racism writ large. They're specific problems with how America treats blacks descended from slaves. It is a moral emergency. Okay, this is a moral emergency. But what the left has done is it, it has expanded the problem of racism to include things that are totally unrelated, like you know, wanting to limit immigration. Suddenly that's racist. That is actually at odds with the needs of the black community. Now I will say also, furthermore, um, so that's on the question of like, you know, I agree with you that there are certain places where racism is not individual, but it is still state sponsored. And we have to actually take care of those issues like very, very urgently. Um, but I think that um, at the same time, um, in terms of like where we're going as a nation, right? We haven't won the battle against police brutality, but the last bill that was put forward to address police brutality was put forward by a Republican, Senator Tim Scott, and it was filibustered by the Democrats, okay? To me, when you have both sides wanting to address something and the thing that's getting in the way of addressing that is a political fight, that is, you cannot even compare that to 10 years ago when Republicans absolutely refused to admit that police brutality was a problem. Mass incarceration, President Trump released 5,000 black men from prison. Um, states like Georgia and Idaho have been overseeing mass releases of prisoners um, over the last 10 years. It's been Republican states that have been at the forefront of ending mass incarceration while Chuck Schumer is protecting the private prisons in you know, northern New York. So it, to me, that is what winning the, the cultural battle looks like. We haven't won the issue yet. These issues still remain. We still have to fight for them. But the 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 entire country is now united in the view that these are problems. That's what I mean about the left having won those battles. Like, yeah, we're still fighting for that equality. It's not there yet, but both sides at this point want it. That is a cultural battle that the left won and won very yeah. recently. So I think when it comes to police reform, number one, when we look at um, 
why that Tim Scott bill sank was that he didn't come to the table being very honest about qualified immunity, which again, qualified immunity for people who don't understand what that is. That is essentially saying that if a police officer commits some sort of crime in the, uh, you know, within doing their duties, that they are absolved from civil suits. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, of course, here in the state of Maryland, where I'm from, we have, you know, uh, you know, the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, which, by the way, they can shoot somebody and not have to give a statement for a week. Like, that's absurd. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's under, in no, under no circumstances, Fatia, if you shot somebody, would they say, okay, we're going to wait a week so you can get your story together. Right, exactly. And then, yeah, yeah. you know, so there, there are these kinds of things. And Republicans have been people who have supported a lot of this, uh, a lot of these uh, things. And, and a, a lot of what Tim Scott was doing was just kind of window dressing and trying to say, hey, I'm for this, but I'm not actually going to have any teeth in it. Um, I agree, you know, and just on the policing front, I'll tell you one thing that I actually disagree uh, with a lot of the left-wing or orthodoxy is the banning of chokeholds. Um, I actually think that that's not always- Did, did not see that coming. <laughs> yeah, no. And the reason, the reason I, I say that is, you know, Richie and I, Richie and I have both done martial arts and chokes are a lot of times safer than strikes. Mm. So when oh, you have wow. people on the mm. ground and you're striking them, you can kill somebody uh -huh, that way. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I haven't been stricken by a cop. Yeah, I haven't been stricken by a cop with a billy club. I would have preferred preferred the uh, the choke. Yeah, like sure. you know, again, <laughs> you can choke someone to death, um, and that's you know, again, I will also say that they should be used only when like there are no other options. Because number one, when you're choking somebody, which you have to recognize is that it is physically impossible physically impossible to not resist being choked mm, you know what yeah. i mean so mm. you can't choke somebody and say stop resisting oh, because wow. when you are losing air oh, you will oh. fight it the thing about drowning like that's why people tie weights to their ankles because you physically cannot i just know, had a it, flashback to like 15 years old and my brother putting me in a chokehold outweighing me by like 50 pounds yeah, you, you, this is even if so you dark. <laughs> yeah, so, All right, but anyway, the chokehold wait, thing we, is, we brighten it up though, because Jason, I just want like I think you guys are basically in agreement on a lot of things here. Obviously, there's progress to be made, but I think kind of what Batia is getting at is the is the framing of the arguments in our discourse mm -hmm. today, which is like basically yeah. the left wants to focus on these, <laughs> these facts like race when actually things like economy are actually more actually much more relevant to you know, the problem at hand. And, and like, again, but see, here's, here's my issue with that. When we ignore. You don't race, have to ignore it. You don't have to ignore it. It's just, it doesn't have but to be the when you, even when you, but there every are certain, every cable news show, you know? Yeah, no, but there are certain issues where class doesn't even necessarily enter into it. For example, you know, the National Academy of Medicine. I, I know this because I oftentimes use this as an example in my classes. Now, they did a report and it says minority persons are, are less likely than white persons to be given appropriate cardiac care, receive kidney dialysis or transplants or receive the best treatments for stroke, cancer and AIDS. Mm -hmm. But it goes on to say, 
racial and ethnic minorities receive lower quality health care than white people, even when insurance status, income, age, and severity of the conditions are comparable. So again, this, this goes beyond you know, police brutality, which I think is a big issue, but you are much more likely to have a heart attack in your life, probably, than getting beaten up by a cop. And, and, I'll, and I'll just say that. That's for you sure. You are much yeah. more likely to need care from a physician. There, there are beliefs, you know, there have been studies that have shown that many medical professionals believe Black people don't experience pain the same way yeah. as white people and have less sensitive nerve endings. Yeah. You know, these are, these are things that, and it, it doesn't matter if you're a rich Black person or a poor Black person. Yeah. We saw with our maternal death uh, issues it, uh, with Black women, and with all the people, by the way, all the people who are pro-life out there, only thing that I'll say is I, I believe your sincerity, but where, for example, with Mississippi and what's going on with Mississippi right now, Mississippi leads the nation in infant mortality. What, where is the work, if you're pro-life, to save the lives of the babies? I mean, they are literally on the same level as Mexico when it comes to infant mortality. And, and so, and guess who the majority of that is? Yeah. Now, again, I'm sure there's a class element to that. But when you look at- So wait, Jason, let me just ask you- But, but wait, let me, let me just say this one last minority, thing. I, I got you. interchanging minority and black. And, I, and so I want to know that in that study, you kind of, yeah. you kind of jumbled the two. Are you, yeah. did acknowledge the fact that black Americans are kind of, mm -hmm. should be, you know, treated as based on what happened historically, should be treated completely separately. And that actually yeah. what you just did was kind of muddy the waters between- Black Americans and minorities. So, is that specifically that study? Is sure, that but but let me let me just say this one Sorry, last thing. <laughs> no, 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 I hear I hear you. But let me just say, uh, you know, you guys remember the case with Serena Williams, where she yeah. almost died during childbirth. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean, or right after childbirth. Yeah. You're not gonna find a wealthier, mm -hmm. more famous person than Serena Williams, but even she couldn't get quality care. You know, and, and Richie and I are saying this as people who have, um, you know, healthcare professionals in our families and all that, and she couldn't get quality care. So my, my whole thing is- I get my stitches on the yes, kitchen table. Yes, <laughs> you know, you were lucky you got stitches. My, my family would be like, Man, rub some- No, I get staples right. if, there are no, if there are no stitches left, I get staples. <laughs> yeah. um, but the whole, the whole point is, like to just boil it down to class does a disservice when it, even with the quality air, you know, you can look at the EPA and some of their studies, the quality air that black people on average breathe. They said, I think it was a report that I read that said that black people who make $200,000 breathe the same quality air as a white person who makes $25,000 a year. Like, so again, when we, when we just, I think class, of course, the intersection of race and class are important, you know, uh, you know when we're gonna talk about these things. And class is absolutely important. One of the things that, you know, when I, when I debated Tucker, I would always say like, your viewer out there that's writing me an email, calling me the N-word has more in common with me, you yeah. know what I mean? Than they do with you, you know, yeah. in terms of the lifestyle they live, and, you know, the fact that they have to look at their, their finances every month and make sure that they're not in the red and, you know, pay their credit cards down. All of those things that Tucker Carlson doesn't have to worry about. Shout out to Tucker. That's my man. But, <laughs> you know, 
that person has that person who thinks they have, and this is how race functions. That person thinks they have more in common with Tucker when they have more in common with me. But aren't you? You're, you're kind of proving Batia's point, right? That, no, I'm, I'm of, acknowledging it. That's my point. Is yeah, I'm acknowledging which is like it. our our the right and the left the framework of the conversation because the left basically I think kind of dictates <laughs> where the discourse goes, and the left and the right is inherently reactionary. Mm. So the right saying, "Oh, CRT," and they're going crazy, and they're falling right into that trap of of jumping into that framework of everything. Nobody, I don't think Batia is saying that that economy or um, you know economic situations are the sole thing that we should boil it down to, but it's it's a more important metric than it gets time in our in our discourse. Is that is that fair, Batia? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, like I said, I think that um, we still are depriving Black Americans of a fair shot at the American dream in many ways, but I think a lot of those ways today are equally shared between left and right, whereas the acknowledgement that we need to do a better job of doing that is also now shared between left and right mm -hmm. at this point. Overall, I mean, obviously there's still racists on both sides, but um, overall. And so once we have that acknowledgement, what is getting in the way of that? Um, you know, how do we solve those problems? How do we approach those problems? The approach to those problems is going to look very different when you have a multiracial coalition acknowledging the problem than mm -hmm. when you just have one side saying, hey, how come these people are not being given a fair shot? That, so, but I, I think we, we were mostly agreeing. I mean, Richie, yeah. I'm curious, do you disagree with anything that we're saying? Well, so <laughs> interestingly, I mean, I certainly, I'm filling in for Vince. I would say I fall like all over the spectrum. I mean, I literally moved to DC and was knocking on doors. Yeah, from, I, I told your I girlfriend moved. that too. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, no, um, but I do think first off, like what you mentioned previously about the institution of marriage and the way that we have conversations about that. I think, you know, where I really, depart from the the modern left and i was thinking about kind of the experience that my mom had moving to washington dc in the late 60s early 70s and i talked to her about this all the time which is you guys were fighting for those things and you know how do you feel about where things have gone now because mm -hmm. she says basically like i i was a feminist and now we can't even like it's it's not even that we can't be as female as we want to be and be comfortable as that it's we can't even we can't even identify what a female is anymore she doesn't even know my mom went on tim pool um two weeks ago and i mean i'm i'm glad she did it because it was like it was like every you know she was in a different world in a different planet from the conversation that's happening like on this kind of like woke cutting edge of like and you know so we had to explain to her like intersectionality is pretty basic but you know it it goes way deeper down the rabbit hole from there and you know my mom's like what happened to you know just like a woman wanting to be a woman um so yeah I, i'd I be interested to hear so what you think funny. about that yeah like i was um like there was this um video the other day of like these women dressed up in the handmaid's tail costumes <laughs> um protesting outside um judge amy coney barrett's yeah, home HDB, yeah and i looked at that and i thought to myself actually tweeted this like so Justice Amy Coney Barrett is literally the embodiment of the feminist dream. Like 
she's got seven kids, two of them adopted. She went to, you know, I think Christian school, small schools, no one's heard of now is a Supreme court justice and is the smartest person in every room she's in. Right. Like what could a woman who literally didn't have to choose any, to leave anything out, which by the way, I think makes a lot of women angry. Like they're like, well, I thought I had to choose between having yeah. an amazing career and having a lot of children. No. So she's this feminist icon to me. I look at her and I think that is the dream. Like I wish she had existed when I was little and I could have been like, no, you can have everything instead of thinking you have to make choices. Um, and, and you see these women protesting her and you know that the women protesting her are the kind of women who say like, well, we don't know what a woman is or trans women are women or like a woman, you know, they, they would struggle. Like there's no diff real difference, biological difference between men and women, right? Like it's just so yeah. funny how, is this another instance of how the right is now gonna take up the mantle of feminism and feminist iconry and like saying you don't have to choose you can have it all while like the feminists on the left today have actually sort yeah. of turned against women in this interesting way yeah what do you think so Jason? i i uh, <laughs> i actually saw that tweet where you, you called um amy coney barrett a feminist icon and i you know it gave me a little bit of a chuckle I, you know because i know some some of my colleagues and friends would would literally have palpitations <laughs> <doing that. laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's fair to say that um, she has been somebody who has accomplished a whole lot and was able to have lots of kids and, and all that. Um, I, I don't know. What does her husband do? You know, I was just going to say, like, because the I think that's a class thing. That's that's my argument is there's a class thing. Most oh, really? women. I thought he was a stay at home dad. Is he a stay-at-home dad? I mean, I, I guess. Be wrong about that, right but he, he you know, I was gonna say, like the way he looks at her in this like worshipful way, like you know, like yeah. that is the feminist dream is to get some guy to look at you like that. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I would say the same thing for uh, uh yeah, he's a lawyer. He's a lawyer. Oh, he's a lawyer, okay. Oh, okay, Sorry. all right. Sorry. Now it's starting fake to look news, a little fake news. <laughs> all right, now he's she's not looking so feminist icony to me. You know, but I, I hear that, but still, I think that that's beautiful. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't know that my, my wife would be with it, but like, I'd have seven kids if I could, but you know, I mean, I, I, I can, but I can't take care of seven kids, but, um, you know, I think it's, I, I think that's wonderful, but it's easier when your husband makes really good money and you are someone who's educated and makes really good money you're yeah, not some you know you're not in a field where you know there are a lot of people who are educated like me who make middle class salaries even though i'd say based on the fact uh, of my credentials and everything that puts me in another class bracket because i think class encompasses more than income yeah, for sure yeah. um so I, I would never go around like you know i, I mean i guess i say i'm a middle class regular Jason's middle class doctor. guy I'm not sure if you're aware he's a doctor. <laughs> he has a monocle as well that he wears sometimes. <laughs> no, but I have a friend from um, South Carolina who's from a very, very poor Black family. And um, I remember one time he tweeted something like, um, that first 100,000 hits very different when you have a very, very large extended family that's also very poor because all of those people are still counting on you to support them. Mm -hmm. And the minute you make that, like for some white kid who's making that money, who came from a middle-class background, 
all that money is theirs. If you come from one of those families where there's just a lot of poverty, like most of that money, it's kind of like immigrants, right? Who send most of their money back home to Honduras or whatever, that, that money just hits different because there's a lot more people who have claims on it. So I, I think, again, coming back to the question of intergenerational poverty and 20 to 30% of Americans descended from slavery, that is a real thing mm -hmm. and a real um, burden on upward mobility, even for people who make it you know, into the next class. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that that's, that's definitely a, a part of it. And I, I understand, I, I think, you know, the point of the whole Handmaid's Tale thing was that it was kind of this dystopian story about the control of women's bodies, not necessarily about Amy Coney Barrett and her accomplishments and, and all okay, that. And I, I think gonna, we're closer to 1984. I want to say something that's going to get me in trouble, probably. I yeah, probably say shouldn't it, say, say this. It. I shouldn't say hey, this. Hey, Logan, but... get ready to clip this. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help. It is so beyond um, reasonable to think. Like, okay, let's take the Mississippi bill, right? 15 mm -hmm. weeks, right? Limiting abortion to fix 15 weeks, which is literally where it's at for most developed nation democracies in Europe, sure. right? Like, mm -hmm. like totally yeah. reasonable or less. Yeah. or less, right? The idea that from there, that leads or is in any way comparable to sexual slavery or to being held mm -hmm. down and raped while some surly infertile woman watches on enviously. There, there's something about that, about the cosplaying element that is so distant from reality that I, yeah. I, I really have to ask myself like, and also by the way, it's always white women at these things. You look at these <laughs> protests, there's no black women there. There's white women holding up signs that say, black yeah. women need this, right? Like it's all, there's something there that is like, I, I, I'm just asking myself, like, these are not the women who need abortions. They're not the women who are going to get abortions. This is nothing like sex slavery. Where is that like dystopian fantasy coming from that is so uh, it, divorced from so, reality? So let, let me just, element. You're right. let, let me, That's let me, very smart point. Let me I mean, play play devil's advocate, okay. aka white women's advocate. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Just joking. I want to keep my job, please. The savior of the Karens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, so when it comes to abortion rights, particularly with, you know, I, I think it wasn't just the 15 weeks, which we know again, just like uh, you know, maintaining the Second Amendment, the whole argument is. Uh, from real far right gun people um, is that it becomes a slippery slope. Once you, you know, start making gun control measures, all of a sudden you've fallen down mm -hmm. on yeah. the path towards total disarmament. And I think what people are saying is that it's 15 weeks now, and then it'll be a six week heartbeat bill. And shout out to that guy. Remember that guy we interviewed who was like, those little babies. You know, the, oh, the, the guy yeah. from Texas, he was like, you know, we got to save those little babies. And I was like, That's weird like, to no. me too, by the way, that is weird to me too. I'm sorry. The attachment <laughs> to the unborn 
I'm sorry. It's like, it's weird to me that feminists think that feminism means I can literally kill something after it's been born. And it's weird to me that right-wingers think that, Mm -hmm. because I'm religious, but I'm Jewish. And in Judaism, in the Talmud, Mm -hmm. you know, life only begins after 40 days. For 40 days, God is still making up his mind whether he wants this thing to happen or not. So Mm -hmm. the first 40 days, it's considered like, you know, just, they call it water, essentially. Like I have an ancient tradition that I rely on. (laughs) It's like, makes me pro-choice basically. But there's, when, when you say that the basis of your pro-choiceness is my body, my choice, you, there's nothing at the upper limit of that, right? So I feel like both mm-hmm. sides are very weird about this. I just want to make a, yeah. a one quick point that I'm so curious what you both think about this. Sure. Okay. The data shows that um, 49% of Americans say they're pro-life and 49% of Americans say they're pro-choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so that looks like a total polarity, right? Like 50-50 mm-hmm. split, blah, blah, blah. If you drill down into the numbers, over 60% of pro-choice Americans only think it should be legal in the first trimester, meaning that Mississippi bill, 15 weeks. And if you look at the pro-life Americans, 75% think there should be exceptions for rape, incest, and the mother's health, which means that like the vast majority of Americans are basically in agreement about the kind of, you know, legal, Mm -hmm. safe, and rare point of view, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so then what do we, what do we see now? We see the two parties, one party is saying, you know, oh, they're looking at the vast majority of Americans who are totally united on this issue, basically, more or less. And they're saying, well, one party says, we're going to be the party that says you can abort it the day before it's due. And the other party that says, we're going to be the party that says, um, you're going to go to jail if you slip and fall and you miscarry after six weeks. It's like insane. But I feel like this is a perfect encapsulation of our entire political system. The vast majority of Americans are just not that divided on anything, really. We're so united about the most important things. And the parties are insane so so let me let me just say in terms of um excuse me the uh you know 15 weeks number one it's arbitrary so it's not it's an arbitrary date it's not like when when we're looking at viability which is a scientific construction you know what i mean is roe v wade but a medical court justices decide that in in a court case not doctors like roe v wade that number was determined by the supreme court you know, right, so but I that, think medical really medical professionals, from from what I've read, say viability is a scientific cutoff, not like 15 weeks or these so-called heartbeat bills, which is six weeks, you know, which, by the way, they call it a fetal heartbeat when it's and I, this is the thing I kept saying to the guy, but he was really he was good. Uh, you know, it's not a fetus until eight weeks. So fetal heartbeat is wrong right. and it doesn't have a heart. So it's not. A heartbeat so it's not a fetal heartbeat you know but mm. the guy was like yeah i understand what you're saying but we got to save those little babies but <laughs> yeah he, he was really good though but that guy was stuck to his guns he's really smart um as far as and i agree with you that we're not as far apart as a lot of us try to make it seem um and i think people have their own interest as to why that is i don't know any literally and and this kind of goes to your point i don't know anyone who thinks that a baby, which is, I, I would say, you know, once a child can live, a fetus can live outside of the womb, it's a baby. Like it's not, like that's a baby. You can't, you can't terminate that. That's terminating a life. Um, Tell Ralph North- I do. No, but that's bullshit. That's not what Ralph Northam was talking about. That's yeah, the is. stuff that, that's the stuff that Batia, I think is talking about. No, but that, 
But my, Jason, that's Jason, not true. Jason, my question is, is what like, was he talking about? You, you know that, you know, that's not but, true. But my question is, is, is you never hear the pro-choice side saying we only mean it until this point. Like they, they, there's no internal <laughs> limitation. Yeah, exactly. From the logic of their position. If their position is a woman should get to choose, we trust the women, right? Tell me until when, and they never will. They won't put an upper boundary on it. I, that That's my yeah. question yeah. to them is like, how do you, where are you going to say you, like, we don't, we don't say we trust women not to steal. And therefore there's going to be no law against theft when women do it. Right. Because it's like, yeah, we trust most women not to I steal. I believe all women. I believe every woman. <laughs> all right. No, well, I, I think again, I, maybe we're talking to different people because I always hear viability. Like that's, that's the thing. I mean, and, and I would say, um, you know, getting back to something you said a little earlier when you were talking about, you know, these these white women who, who like to do the cosplay and and dress up like the handmaids and go in front of judges. R.I.P. my career for having said that. No, listen, <laughs> you know, I think you're Bill Burr and others, they've survived these kinds of critiques. So I think you're going to be all right. And I will have your yeah, back. Our audience doesn't mind. <laughs> um, I, I, I dis, I'm, I, the reason that I will disagree is mm -hmm. that you were saying, like, it doesn't affect these kind of middle and upper class white women. But when we look at the topic that you brought up, which is rape and incest, that doesn't have a class on it. You totally. know, particularly, totally. I, I, and when I look at my students who, when they walk into a classroom, I have to, you know, I look at all the women in the class and realize that one out of four, out of every four of them is probably going to be the victim of a, some sort of sexual assault before they graduate. So those are middle-class kids for the most yeah. part, you know what I mean? Um, and so you're right. That's one cultural. of the things about, about rape, you know, if God forbid one of them were to be uh, you know, to become pregnant, you know, to have to change their entire lives. Um, and, and then some of these states, you know, as we talk about the right going nuts, some of these states want to give the family of the rapist, you know, the right to visitation and the right to, you know, all, all you know, to, you know, some sort of parental rights for, the person who committed a sexual assault. Those are the kinds of right, things right. That, so, that I'm like, yeah. this is insane. Yeah. I, I, I think what I would say to that is like, there's barbarity on both sides of this, right? There's people who definitely are refusing to put <laughs> upper limit. There's people who are, that is barbaric. What you just, you know, the, the, a lot of the stuff happening on the right is barbaric as well. Um, I would say though, like what I think is probably gonna happen if they overturn Roe v. Wade is a whole bunch of states are gonna enact extremely restrictive abortion laws at the state level. And then their, their voters are going to vote in less crazy people to overturn turn those because yeah. that's how democracy works and yeah. i just I, i'm yeah. not sure that that as you know i don't see why that's necessarily inherently a bad thing or anti-democratic one of the issues here with this whole discussion that the left has to own is the fact that they've been out organized for 40 years on this issue mm -hmm. and yes 27 states or 27 or 23 some reason I have both numbers in my head, but uh, 20 plus states say that they are going to consider overturning, you know, uh, and making abortion illegal completely. Um, the question is, 
is abortion a big enough issue that people are going to go and vote out their state houses and their state legislatures um, yeah. over that? Or are women who have been raped and who are victims of incest and some, you know, 14 year old kid who, who gets sexually assaulted, like, are they going to bear the brunt of these kinds of political issues? Jason, I'm not so sure have? that, you know, your, your view on the kind of like the conservative rights view of those, those cases is as extreme as you, I've been to a lot of like, you know, these pro-life marches in DC, I've been to protests across the political spectrum. And I just, I think what Bhatia is saying is actually a lot more um, what I see on the ground, which is like people are willing to have that dialogue about those, they have compassion for those situations. And, and it's something that they are willing to like wrestle with when you actually, you know, when the rubber meets the road and you actually give them the example, give them a situation that you lay out. I mean, I've had these conversations, um, uh, both pro, you know, the women's march and the, um, you know, the pro-life marches. And I will say something that I've noticed is certainly that uh, the pro-life marches are a lot more open to that conversation than the pro-choice marches, you know, the, the so-called uh, women's march or the, the uh, pussy hats, I guess I can say it, pussy hats. Yeah. That's what they call them, right? That's <laughs> yeah, the politically correct term. The, I'd say the pink <laughs> hats, I, just, I just, just to make it keep full, YouTube happy. Yeah, I, I just want to take it full circle though on what yeah. Bati's initial question was, which is like, don't you think that the core of America kind of between this like moderate left and right are a lot more on board with like a collective idea? I think that every single contentious issue that we've seen come up since the Trump era, and I'm not saying that I think Trump is more of a symptom than he is the cause of all this, although certainly is not doing anything <laughs> to like put out the flames. But I've been on the ground, you know, covering all of this unrest for, on the MAGA side and on, on the BLM side and, and you know, the, the abortion stuff all these causes that people care a lot about. The same thing ha is happening with the abortion debate that happened with the, um, what should have been a police reform movement, but became all cops are bastards yeah. and defund the police. And so yeah. ultimately it's like, when you're, when you're talking about incremental progress and you look at like where we've come since the Stonewall riots and since the civil rights movement of the 1960s mm -hmm. and where we are today, I mean, we are making progress. This democracy is moving forward. And I think that, with the abortion thing, it's like the Roe v. Wade was like this top that was put on it for 50 years and it's been simmering. And now that it's finally taken off and it's it's now up to potentially, obviously it's just a draft, potentially up to states, people really have to start having those hard conversations about where they fall on those difficult questions, Jason's. But I, I just think that we're just entering that phase of like people actually really like, wait, you know, now that this is a reality, what do I really think? Yeah. Yeah, but it is a cosplay element that I think causes the extremes and like the people on the ground are way more extreme than the average person sitting at home on Twitter. But guess who's driving the conversation? It's the right, people who are right. on the ground and then Rachel Maddow. Right. And, and that's the back, thing you know? is like, so if, if this had been happening on the left and Mississippi had br you know brought out the 15 week bill, right? If this was a conversation that was happening on the left, all of the lefties who wanted it to be illegal after six weeks would have gone after the Mississippi lefties and been like, mm -hmm. you're not really left. What is this 15 weeks nonsense, right? Cause they eat their own. Whereas yeah. on the right, they're like, all right, you know, everybody's doing their part. Everybody's right. you know, unified together like there's a real lesson for our side in that you know <laughs> yeah no I, I agree and i'll tell you this like um what is it media matters says that i'm some sort of like fake lefty that's 
going into, <laughs> you know, going into the, you know, the right wing places because I want to, because I want to make boatloads of money. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I do have one question that kind of changes, um, you know, changes the way we're talking about these things. And, and that is like, you made an argument against universal pre-K um, saying that it, it supports the two income trap. Mm. Um, mm. So I kind of wanted to see, you know, or, or talk a little bit about that um, because obviously there are lots of us on the left um, who, who particularly, you know, getting into some of these uh, discussions about race and education and all of that. And I, you know, anecdotally, I've seen what happens when kids, some kids have pre-K and other kids come into a kindergarten class and it's their first uh, time inside a classroom, you know, social emotional issues and, and, you know, not being prepared to be in that kind of environment and it slows everything down and then kids get frustrated with school. Um, so I just kind of want to, you know, kind of hear your side of that. If I've, if I've totally, fairly. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Know. No, that's a really, really good point. A strong point. Um, my problem with universal pre-K is that the vast majority of women who are in the workforce are not working because they're like us, like people who are deeply connected to our careers and get a lot of meaning out of them. Most of them are middle and working class people who work at jobs that they don't actually like, and they would much rather be home raising their children. That's just, you know, statistically, right? We're in the top 10%. We have, we're careerists. We're like meritocratic elites who are overeducated, blah, 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 right? So we're in this very small minority, right? Who are very addicted to our jobs and very into them and get a lot of self-esteem and meaning from them. Most people do not. Most people working is a way to feed their family, a way to sustain the lifestyle so that they can do things on the weekends when they're not working and take vacations, right? And right. for those people, like most of those women, like they would much rather be home raising their children than working at Walmart or working at Amazon. So my question is like, why are we taking billions of dollars of taxpayers funding, taxpayers money? And instead of saying, to, to women, hey, actually, we're going to pay you to watch your own kids at home. We're saying we're going to give them so that you can send them away and keep working at your dead end job. We're going to take your taxpayer dollars from your Walmart salary, right? And make sure that every kid gets free pre-K instead of like, there's many ways to handle that, that actually gets at the bigger problem. The, the thing you just said about there being that gap between kids of different races and different economic backgrounds, that's a problem. But the solution we've come up with universal pre-k is is accepting that that problem has to be there yeah. as opposed to mm -hmm. saying like why are kids expected to be so advanced already at the pre-k level that's part of that meritocratic crap where everything is increasingly specialized kids are at, on the rat race earlier and earlier and earlier because the funnel that gets you into the middle class has become so narrow and the working class is so downwardly mobile so i, I to me that just looks like compounding a problem rather than addressing the real problem which is that we've made it impossible for blue collar workers to achieve the american dream no, I, I, there are parts of what you said that, that I kind of see. The only thing is when you're talking about, first of all, um, you have to give, I think, the left and the current administration credit because they are paying people through a child tax credit. Yes. You know, a lot, um, all the credit, all the credit. That's, you know, that's they, great. They, that's and, really important. And again, they don't get credit because yes, they're, number yes, one, no, they're bad at the messaging. <laughs> and, and, they don't get credit because they've and, done a fantastic job 
I give. I, mean, they I give. They're just bad at messaging. Credit. Credit. No, they I are. They, they are bad at messaging. That's a fact. You That's know? the only and, problem, though. That. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there are other problems. I mean, we could talk about, you know, of course, inflation is a problem, but we also understand that China is shutting down ports and cities, like, to this very yeah, day. Yeah, I wish we had, like, a really strong leader who could, you know, stick it to China for doing yeah. it. And the whole, the whole country, I mean, the whole world, Japan, the EU, everybody is experiencing record inflation, literally. But, yeah. again, you can't say that because you're like, oh, you're, you know... You're making excuses. It's like, no, this is like a global issue. But anyway, um, now here, here's my, my take on it. And I, and I hear what you're saying and I acknowledge what you're saying as well. Um, <clears throat> you know, but the economic benefits of pre-K for children. So there's a study by, by Heckman and colleagues um, that found that disadvantaged children who went to pre-K were less likely to get arrested, go on welfare, or be unemployed as adults, all of which costs society, you know, costs all of us, whether you're a working class person yeah. or yeah. a middle class person. There's also, you know, um, an estimated, there was a study in Boston and, you know, Mayor Menino, who, uh, you know, my, my wife is from Boston, um, you know, from, from Roxbury and, you know, they did a study with about, I think, 4,000 kids putting them, you know, 4,000 four-year-olds and putting them into um, pre-K as opposed to, you know, citywide. And what they found was there was an estimated 10% return on every dollar invested in the mm -hmm. Boston study. So while I agree with you that we do need to, I, I would say, expand the child tax credit and also... I think that there needs to be some sort of clamp down since, you know, Richie is talking about this administration. I think there needs to be a clamp down on corporate price gouging, which is happening, whether people want to acknowledge or not. They're, they're having record levels of profits, 25% every year since this pandemic. And we are paying for that, by the way, the, the targets the TJ Maxx's, the Kroger's. They're you want to know what they're going to do, though? Record levels. So I think, I don't know how to clamp down on that without, you know, you know, turning no things into a socialist place that I want it to be. Go ahead. There's no political will from the Biden administration because the left has become the party of the corporatists and big tech. Yeah, not. I mean, that, I that mean, might be it. I, I think both sides are parties of corporatists and big tech. And, yeah, you know, I, when you get, when you've given people these huge tax credits, I mean, not tax credits, I'm sorry, um, tax breaks uh, that the right gave them over the last, you know, the, the previous administration, you know, they're, they're taking, they're banking up. And that's how, you know, you're able to buy Twitter just yourself. So I also wanted to ask you with that Twitter part of it, what do you think about Elon Musk and him buying Twitter? <laughs> So I have a sort of like, nobody likes my take on this. Every time I tweet about it, people get really mad at me, but um, I, I think it's terrible. I think, I think Elon Musk is a China stooge. And I think that China is the biggest threat <laughs> to American democracy. And so like, he, I think I don't have TikTok on my phone because I don't want the co Chinese Communist Party monitoring everything. Me neither. I, I think they're the biggest threat to America. And I think if Elon Musk bought, that guy is on his knees. He's never said no to the Communist Chinese, Chinese Communist Party ever. He built a showroom in Xinjiang, which is where they are committing a genocide against Uyghur Muslims. 
He built a showroom there, not because he's going to sell any Teslas in Xinjiang. He built a showroom there to show his compliance with a genocidal regime. So I, to me, if he buys Twitter, I will essentially consider it like TikTok. It will be under the thumb of the Chinese Communist Party. And I don't see, it's so, so crazy to me to see right wingers celebrating this. I'm like, you guys are supposed to be the ones mm-hmm. who understand the threat from China. And they're like, oh, our new corporate overlord supports our free speech. No, he doesn't. Right. He really That's- doesn't. That's what I don't too. He's a globalist. He totally. wants to like upload our consciousness totally. onto the like onto the cloud. And it's like if you're like a God fearing conservative news. Christian, like how can you be on board with What are you that, doing? You know? Yeah. And he's like know, he's got like terrible. he has like he names his kid like numbers and then he just like goes and like it's flies awful. off. He doesn't even have a house. Awful. Like he's a bum. He, he doesn't even have his house. It's so couch. true. The thing <laughs> is, I, I totally get I'm on the left, but I can see how disgusting Twitter is to conservatives, like how censored they are. I'll I'll just tell you guys the only time I've ever had a tweet censored, we had a debate at Newsweek, and this was the name of the debate. It was is climate change an emergency? Meaning both sides of the debate accepted that climate change was real, but one side was saying it's not an emergency. They censored that tweet. Like, not allowed to say that. They, no. It's like you can't. It's horrible how they treat conservatives. I totally get that, and I think it's it makes us all stupider. Like the reason the left is so dumb is because they spend all their time on Twitter, and there's no smart conservatives allowed to like have their not none, but like they censor a lot of conservatives. But at the same time, I mean, Elon Musk is not your savior. Like he's that yeah. guy's bad news. Batia, yeah, I do want to ask you, yeah. like, on the topic of you know being on Twitter censorship. Um, so I worked at Al Jazeera, then NBC news. Then I worked for Mark Levin and now I work at the caller. So I've kind of been across the spectrum. And one thing I noticed kind of in the, um, I mean, Al Jazeera was a small office. It was like the, just the, uh, Washington satellite office that that wasn't the case there necessarily, but at NBC, one thing I noticed was kind of a, a, uh, corporate hierarchy that created a intellectual orthodoxy within the newsroom within the company and within the coverage and NBC nightly news, they can choose six stories every night. And I think to a huge extent, you know, um, that orthodoxy of like, we can call it left leaning, um, you know, left leaning elites. Cause like these guys are based in New York and DC. They, I think wanted to view things in terms of race. Like you were saying, they, had certain things that you weren't allowed to talk about. I mean, this is before Trump, so I think it's probably gotten even worse. But I want to ask you, like, I felt uncomfortable voicing my actual opinion in that newsroom, whereas in the caller newsroom, I mean, I say the craziest lefty stuff. I say the craziest, you know, we just go all over. I mean, we talk about everything, and it's very open. So I, I, I was wondering, like, I know you still work at Newsweek, so obviously, like, I'm not asking you to, like, spill the beans, but I, I'm asking your experience working in media do you think that that's a component of the left, especially like um, nowadays? So Newsweek now is considered a center-right publication because we host both the left and the right. Like mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say is like, wow. we are nonpartisan. Yeah. We have all sides. Yeah. My boss is a Trump guy. We have two other guys. Yeah. One's a lefty, one's a righty. We're considered center-right because we have exactly. both sides. That has now become like a, a, a right-wing proposition, even though we're not, mm. we're, we're central, we're both sides. We, we're, we're anti-cancel culture. Um, and yeah. I think that that is um, really sad. And that happened, I was at my last job. I, I saw that happening like throughout the three years that I was there to where like in the beginning, it was like 
you know, I was getting it from both the left and the right. Like, how dare you run this piece or that piece? And by the end, it was like the right was saying, oh, this piece is so gross, but I could see why she has to run it because, you know, we have to hear from all sides. And the left was like, to the gulag, you know? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. so it was like, that has happened very recently. And I, yeah. I don't know, Jason, what do you make of that? Do you see that? Do you notice that? Do you um, worry about it? <laughs> yeah, He's canceled no, I, by I, the left more than we are. <laughs> <I> know, <right? laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I, I mean, I, I definitely, um, definitely see that. And I, I definitely, you know, I, I still go to Newsweek and, and look at a lot of your pieces. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Batia, you know, but I, I also read other people's pieces there, there at Newsweek. So I never, I always thought you guys, thought of you guys as down the center. The only thing that I disagreed with is um, the idea that Twitter is this kind of, you know, left-wing haven or left-wing space when it really, I think the right dominates Twitter. And there's actually a study that, that backs that up that says that Twitter's algorithm leans to the right. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I can I can see if I can find let, it. Let me but, let me go ahead and give yeah, you. Yeah, I overstated that. Quick. You're right. That's let, it. Yeah. Let me, go, let me give you my theory on I that. I overstated though. that. Yeah. I, I've been I've been thinking about this. I I think that right now in the public discourse, people <laughs> who tend to associate themselves with the right in this current environment have a tendency to speak much more honestly and much more frankly than people who are trying their best to embody whatever that shifting goalpost of this leftward swing that's happening right now culturally, um, which I think the reason for those engagements being higher on the conservative side is because the left. Sorry, it's because the left is talking Jason's like, got receipts. like <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. What, what does it say? <laughs> Twitter's algorithm favors right leaning politics research finds it's from BBC. If, you, if you, I can find other, it's it's all the same study, but. Uh, oh, I yes, think what Richie's saying is interesting. <laughs> of course I believe that now. Richie, you're saying that right-wing people have to be more careful about how they phrase things and how they. No, I'm saying that right-wing uh, people have to be less careful about how they phrase things than left-wing people <laughs> on in the public discourse right now. Uh, uh -huh, I think uh -huh. the left-wing people are afraid of committing the crime of wrong think. Yeah, yeah, whereas, yeah. Whereas people who identify as conservatives have already committed that crime based on their political identification yeah. in the first place. And so, Jason, I, I'm just saying, I think like that's more a byproduct of, of the, the right being the reactionary force that's kind of saying the more extreme stuff, saying the things that like, you know, stoke the fire more, which is what Twitter's all about. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Kind of rather than just like upholding the kind of like um, left-leaning, like, don't you think we do have an intellectual orthodoxy in our elite, amongst our elite for, intellectual circles that le leans sure. left? you acknowledge that? For sure. I, I think that, you know, um, you know, and, and there are certain, I, I think the pandemic really, in terms of uh, like censoring right wing information, you know, or some people call it disinformation, whatever side you want to call it. I think the pandemic really, you know, exacerbated that because there were discussions about, I'm not going to say the, the, the name of the drug because I don't want this to get pulled off of YouTube. But there were discussions about right. that turned out to be, you know, an ineffective drug. And, and I think that there was a way to actually say scientifically. Are you talking about uh, the thing that rhymes with Shmihirachi Chloroquine? Or is that what uh, you're talking about? <laughs> well, that was one ineffective drug. 
Oh, you're talking about Schmen Schmezebier. <laughs> well, Which I don't one know. are you talking about? I was I was talking about Myver Schmechten. Yes, <laughs> there you go, there you go. But I think all of those kind of fit into it, and I understand there was a you know there was this public health uh, fear that people were going yeah. to go and you know I don't know start you know we saw it as a matter of fact people you know would have family members dying in the hospital. Yeah. And Dude, what's they'd the, be like, what's the give fear me of taking that drug? My that drug has been on the market for 40 and, years. You know, the, what, and, what's the, that drug literally has like, like almost no side effects. You can argue that it's not effective for treating right, it. And yeah. so it, it's, a it's a bad thing. But like the idea that like Joe Rogan gets attacked by the entire corporate media establishment for saying that he got a, a, a illness and he, he and, treated it his and, own way. And here's the thing about the right, though, Richie. Here's the thing. It. They said it's horse dewormer. It's not. It's literally been approved by the FDA. No, no, I, I hear like, that. I hear that. And I agree. It's like we one agree. of the safest drugs out there. No, it's we insane. we agree. Here, here's the thing, though. Joe Rogan benefited financially from that. All the yeah, right yeah. who lives grievance culture lives this idea of everyone's yeah. against me. Yeah. I agree. benefit that. from that. The only person yes. who doesn't benefit from... Everyone being against them is me. Okay. <laughs> yes. Jason is the. <laughs> I am the one guy I, I who has that. not benefited at all from yes. everybody hating them. But again, that, that's because one side hates you and the other side loves you more, you know, because mm -hmm. of that. And you're not, you play, know? you're not playing the game. You're not. And you're I, not I'm somebody who everybody hates. So it's like, <laughs> you know. Um, it's, we're going to make a movie about you called The Man Without a Tribe. And he's yeah, just walking yeah, no, around. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, like, like, it's like everybody hates Chris, like everybody hates Jason, but that's okay. You know, and I, and I, um, I still enjoy having these conversations and enjoy, enjoy having this discussion now. Oh, one last question. And then we're going to give you the rest of your afternoon. And then I'm going to start sending you stuff every week. Yes. Uh, <laughs> because Newsweek. I can tell you Newsweek's audience is going to love you. Yeah. Oh, now you definitely don't really write something right now. Yeah, don't take I need them away love. From us. <laughs> you know, I need like, love. I like That's what they all need in life. Um, so you know, Richie was saying that he um was attacked in Israel, and oh, yeah. um we there was recently a journalist. He also said that he worked for Al Jazeera. There was recently a journalist who was um shot by the Israeli um. Idea. military well it's unclear who shot her um the palestinian authority will not release the bullet which they pulled out during the autopsy so the israelis are asking for an investigation they claim that she was shot by a palestinian terrorists um the palestinian authority said we're going to investigate and then when they got hit their hands on the bullet they refused to release it so to me that suggests that it was not the Israeli military because if it was that thing would be all over the place and everyone would know about it so I but it's it's you know I don't want to sound like a conspiracy <clears throat> theorist but it is contested and there's you know we're not gonna I didn't realize that shot her. yeah, yeah. I, I, wow I didn't I didn't realize that is uh, that either but um, something horrific happened today which is um her her coffin was pulled out of the car that it was in um and they were marching through the streets with it and um a bunch of israeli police officers start they someone started throwing stones and they started attacking the people literally holding her coffin and they almost dropped the coffin it's 
most horrific thing I've seen in a long time. You know, respect for the dead is um, one of the most sacred Jewish uh, values. Absolutely. And and to see the desecration of the dead by these by these police thugs is just horrifying. So the story is just. <coughs> it's, I mean, her death was horrific. It's tragic. And sorry, you you were going to ask a question though, and I'm just. No, 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 no. Yeah, I, yeah. I you know I, I kind of want to you know just kind of open it up and get your perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah you were born in Israel. Yeah. Oh no, I was born here, but um, I went to high school in Israel, and um, yeah, the situation there is horrible. It's um, they're occupying the West Bank, so the, the 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 Palestinians who live in the West Bank live essentially under Israeli military rule, but don't vote for the arm for the government mm -hmm. that controls that army. That's a real civ human civil rights abuse. Palestinians living in Gaza are essentially living under blockade. The, the, literally, nobody there has any reason to live. The, 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 and it's this very young population and all none of those kids have a future. Palestinians living in Israel with Israeli citizenship make up about 20% of Israel's population and they have 98% of the same rights as Israeli Jews. It's, it's not 100%, it should be 100%. Israel still has a long way to go on that front, but they that their plight is very different from um, Palestinians in Gaza, whose plight is very different from Palestinians in the West Bank. So, you know, Israel has three Palestinian problems, essentially, that make up this conflict. I'd choose and the West Bank. If I had to choose one, I'd, I'd choose the West Bank. What do you mean? Oh, to solve? If, or? If I no, if I had to be, if I had to, you know, I would not yeah. choose. The Gaza Strip is the last place oh, on the yeah, planet Earth horrific. that I would choose to live. And I, I, I will say, I think this does come full circle here, though, because, um, Planet you know, Earth of, is a big place. Uh, well, well, I'm saying shout out to everybody in Gaza, but there, there are some places, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, other than than Gaza that. And and I will say this, you know, um, I, I guess you know, with this issue, it's a really difficult issue because mm -hmm. I, I, you know, like I was saying earlier, I grew up around um, a lot of Jewish people. I have a lot of friends who whose families are connected to Israel. Um, former, you know, people who are descended from Holocaust survivors and all of that. Um, and but I will always reserve the right to criticize a nation state. Like exactly. there's 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 no like 100%. that is not this this conflation that it is anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic yes. to, yeah. to criticize a nation state. That would yeah. be like saying, you know, criticizing, you know, Nigeria is anti-black. Right is certainly guilty right. of that. Um, yeah, it, totally it can agree. be anti-black, but it's not automatically right. anti-black. Right. 100%. You know what I mean? There, there can be a, a criticism of Israel that is anti-Semitic. But, um, I, I and to be honest, I, I've honestly not gotten educated on this topic almost on purpose you know what i mean like there's almost like yeah. an ignorance it's, is bliss the can of it's you know, a can of worms it's I, such it's a, so much like, history. i i i will say um sorry jason i didn't mean to interrupt yeah. you no no, no. I, and last thing i'll say is that i think it also obscures a lot of other things that go around the world going around the world you know what i mean there's but it is like a pro it's a proxy for this kind of clash between um you know the the like I will say that Israel aligns you know, more with the West. They have historically, you know, since the Soviet Union was aligned with the, the with the Arab world, even though Stalin was the first one to recognize the Israeli state. Um, but basically, you know, it's like kind of a proxy for this this argument of like Western imperialism of encroachment of, of monopolizing of resources 
of marginalization of populations. And so that's why I was saying, I think it comes all full circle because what happened to me um, when I decided to study Arabic and go to, uh, go to Georgetown to study Arabic was like, I saw 9-11, my mom worked in Manhattan. She was on her way into work that day. And I saw what happened to my friend's parents. I saw what happened to my friend's brothers burning up in that building. And I, my answer to that was learn Arabic at the best place that I can learn Arabic so I can be the best person I can to go kill terrorists. You know, that was my idea. I went over, I studied Arabic for, for an hour a day for three years. And I lived in Jordan for uh, six months. And when I went over there, I went to Israel, I went to Lebanon, I went to Egypt, I went to Turkey, you know, I, I was traveling all around the region and the West Bank. And when you actually get on the ground there, you realize that like the platitudes that our media has been speaking in, it does such a disservice to actually solving any of the problems and the way that our American media, our American military, the way that we operate in, in that region, it's, it's all around dollars and, you know, basically like the, the invasion of Iraq, I think about this all the time. CNN and MSNBC were just as for the Iraq war as Fox was. Yeah, and absolutely. it was because it was politically, politically incorrect to say anything otherwise, right? Because you didn't support the troops if you didn't. And there were so absolutely. few people on the left at the one moment that the press was the, the last linchpin before that invasion. Yeah. So, sorry, I'll, I'll just Barbara, finish by Barbara saying that, like, the, yeah. the same thing has happened to me in media, which is coming to work in media. I'm like, you know, with Arabic, I was like, okay, I actually don't want to go kill terrorists because I don't want to empower like this crazy, stupid war machine that has nothing to do with the reality on the ground. Because I met the people in Lebanon who said they were Hezbollah, and I met the people in Israel who said they were IDF, and I had a human face on both of them. And so now in media covering the civil unrest, I'm like, it's so absurd the way that, you know, the right takes this one clip on Twitter and turns it into the face of BLM terrorists. Mm. And then you have the, ex it's even worse now with the one stick stuff on the left. It is insane the way that's been treated in our media and the way it's been, you know, played up to be worse than 9-11. That is like, it's so, I think, insidiously partisan the way that um, our media establishment on both sides, you know, on a corporate level, not like us individuals having this conversation where we're all just talking what we really think. Um, so I just think nobody wants to put a human face on the other side. That's what it is. That's what it comes down to because it's easier to have a bad guy and you get more ratings, you get more advertising. And, you know, if you have a bad guy, then you can invade him. And that's nice because you can take their oil. Sorry, I'm done. <laughs> I've been thinking about this uh, for, you know, the whole show. So, um, but Batia, I'd be interested to hear what you say from kind of the more, um, you know, you went to high school in Israel about like the way that that's treated um, in American media? Well, um, I think that on the left right now, there's this very knee-jerk sort of anti-Israel position that does often veer into anti-Semitism. It's much beyond criticism of the Israeli government, and it's very woke in nature. It sort of mm -hmm. casts Israel as the white oppressor against a Palestinian oppressed. They erase, you know, the fundamental reality of Palestinian terrorism. They erase all of the problems within Palestinian society. They erase the fact that Israel is constantly under threat from these people. It's terrible. But, you know, at the same time, there does seem to me to be very little demand of accountability from Israel for its occupation. Um, I, I think, you know, funding the Iron Dome, for example, I'm a lefty and I feel like I don't understand why we give so much money to other governments. I think Israel's a very rich country. It could probably afford to, to fund its yeah. own military. And, um, you know, I think we fund it because it's a strategic asset, but that case is never 
asked to be made, like, what are we getting out of this relationship? I think America does get a lot of, you know, out of having an ally, a strong ally in the Middle yeah. East. So to that extent, it probably is in our best interest. But I don't, I, I there, you know, when I look at $40 billion being sent to Ukraine, it makes my blood boil. You yeah. know, when I look at baby formula being, you know, sent to uh, illegal immigrants and well, when American mothers can't find anything to feed their kids, that stuff makes my blood boil. So I, I definitely don't want to, I don't have a double standard when it comes to Israel. Like I do think we should be asking, what are we getting in exchange for this money? And that case mm -hmm. should have to be made every single time. And it, it, it seems to me, you know, that we've fallen into this pattern of just like say, oh no, this is the way that it is. Um, yeah. And I'm not sure that it is. So you know I who you number know number two is, Fatia? Saudi Arabia, right? Is uh, it's, it's Egypt. Yeah. So Egypt, you got, yeah, well, actually yeah. it might, Saudi might've passed it, but yes, the yeah. point, I think that that just played into exactly what we're talking about, which is yeah. it's this game of, yeah. you know, bad guy versus good guy. But in reality, there's only one group that's benefiting and it's not the American class, middle class. It's can, certainly American middle class. I can tell you from, from my experience in the middle East, <clears throat> um, Arab people are some of the kindest, most, giving they like if they have a meal yeah. they have a piece of bread they're going to split it with you like that that's been my experience and even some of my friends who uh who served overseas some of my good friends they'll tell you the exact same thing um so when it's like we want to you know this idea we want to kill terrorists we, you know these people are terrorists i think you know again not only is it an oversimplification it's it's islamophobic it's you know um, I, I think you could say Middle Eastern people are Semitic people, so it's anti-Semitic. Um, I, I, I would say that. And I also just, um, when it comes to, you know, Israel, I think that there are fundamental things that most people agree with, even on the left. People agree that, you know, Israel has been a nation that has existed since, what, 1948 or something? So it's like... 48, yeah. It, it, you know, it, it was, it was made, it is true, you know, I think to, I think it's fair to acknowledge that it was a deal with colonialism, you know, it was a deal yeah. with the mm -hmm. British and all that, that created well, Israel. I mean, and so this idea that it's tied to yeah. white power, I, I, well, I kind of get yeah. that argument, but but still, and, and and then there are people that say I mean, you, you have know. to you have to erase a lot of history to arrive at that conclusion. There were Jews continuously in Israel since like biblical days. Like there was never a time when yeah, there yeah. were not Jews there. So to say that it's like a, a colonial project, I think is like but as the, the Jewish state. That that's what I'm I'm saying. Not like you know, no. uh, that there were Jews in the region. <laughs> well, the, you know the, I mean? but the, the Soviet Union was the first country to, to acknowledge Israel as a state, actually, because what they wanted was a place where they had a, a problem with ethnic Jews, you know, basically having their own identity beyond the Soviet identity. So they figured, okay, great, they can go to Israel. Um, yeah. So Stalin was the first one. So it wasn't necessarily <laughs> colonial because, you know, I wouldn't put the Soviet Union necessarily like as the same brand of colonial. I think colonial, the word has a certain like Western, you know, um, European derivation to it, but like- Yeah, and I'm, I mean, there, there are a lot of stories I think that, you know, um, have come out of Israel that have, you know, in terms of like their treatment of refugees, um, you know, particularly people from Africa, you know, that I think a lot of people, are, you know, wonder a little bit about the, the irony of it, of a, a place that was a refuge 
for people who are being marginalized in other places. And then you have refugees and they, they're like, you know, get out of here. And sometimes there were these discussions. I don't know if you, you remember when there was the whole discussion about certain groups of people, for, for particularly um, uh, Ethiopian Jews being, mm -hmm. uh, you know, forcibly sterilized. Um, yeah, that, that turned out to um, actually have been sort of fake news. Yeah, um, I think it was overstated. Yeah. 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 But I, I, my understanding was that it was, it was, it was not as systemic as it was. I mean, listen, every, systemic. every country has struggles with racism. There's no yeah. anti-black racism is a real problem yeah. across no. the globe and Israel struggles with it as well. I mean, that's not, I think no, you know, few people, I, I Israelis themselves, they, they talk about this yeah. a lot, the treatment of Ethiopian Jews, the treatment of Sudanese refugees. These are problems that, you know, Israel definitely has. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, no. I'm, and, yeah. and again, like Israel has problems. And I feel like I said, I feel like I have the right to criticize Israel, but oh, not yeah. anymore. I don't criticize Israel any more <laughs> than I criticize France or, you know, or, you know, Spain or any other country that has or Mexico. Lots of these countries have issues, particularly with anti-Blackness or with anti-Indigenous people. So I agree with that. And as a matter of fact, you want to talk about a, a, a country that has issues with refugees and immigrants and sterilizing them. How about the United States of America? You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like that, that just came out in Georgia where they were, you know, sterilizing women who were um, undocumented here in the United States. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm not saying Israel is this special evil power. And I think that's one of the mistakes uh, that we make. Um, but acknowledging that there needs to be reforms, yeah, you know, I think is I think is fair game. And totally. it's not anti-Semitic to state. Totally, that. totally. Um, totally. But, but that's not how the conversation's going down. I think that's that's what we can all agree on is like right. it's it's very much two different, you know, conversations happening separately from each other. Yeah. And, and I mean you guys are way, like I said, I think you guys, with all the, the space that I have, you know, the mental and intellectual capacity have, I have not filled it up with Israel. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I think partly on purpose, because I Dude, think- Tel Aviv yeah. is a great party city. Tel Aviv. <laughs> no, I want to go to Israel. I want to visit. Party city than Tel Aviv is Beirut. <laughs> but I, I just don't want, I just think that it obscures many of the other injustices around the world. You know what yeah. I mean? Just like the right won't talk about Israel, but they'll talk about the Uyghurs. The left won't talk about the Uyghurs, but they'll talk about yes. Israel. I think that's, you that's know? exactly that's we'll exactly so well put. That is so well put. In different yeah. places. Collective um, outrage. Yeah, I, I think that, how that about so well we as the United States, number one, deal with what's going on in our own backyard, but yeah. also, yeah. you yeah. know, be willing. And and th again, this is one of the reasons, and, and this is an indictment of us, kind of, is that we've turned from news to punditry mm -hmm. and, you know, Badia, you're a real journalist. I, you know, I'm an academic and, you know, I'm, I'm, not, a I'm a pundit. I'm not a real journalist at all. I mean, I report, but I'm not, yeah. I, I mean, the real reporters, you know, it's like, I, I they put me to shame. So I know yeah. I, I totally hear what you're saying and it's true. It's, it's a problem, but, yeah. um, you know, I think that if I would have less of a problem if the pundits were on the side of like the working class, you know, the problem is that they're all exactly. on the, side of the elites. It's like the leftist pundits yeah. are on the side of the leftist elites and the right wing mm -hmm. pundits are on the side of the right wing elites and nobody's speaking for 90% of Americans. Like that's the real problem. Yeah. Well, you are, you definitely, I think did a good job speaking for most Americans. 
And we are really appreciative of you coming on here. Thank you so much uh, for having me. You know, it's funny. It's a pleasure. Whenever, Wait, whenever I'm, um, Jason, should I tell the story of how I got slapped in Jerusalem? Yeah, no, nah, definitely. I, but let me just real quickly, I just <laughs> want to say every time I am, I'm wrapping my, my hands in gauze and dipping them in glue and glass, getting ready to, to, you know, to scrap. I have someone like Batia that comes on and charms <laughs> yes. the pants off of me. So shout out to, to Batia. Like this was an incredible experience. And hopefully, I don't know, are you in DC? Well, I don't know if we want to give you a location, but- No, I'm in Brooklyn. I'm in New York. Yeah. yeah. New York. Well, when I'm in New York, I'm going to hit you up. Hit me up. Yeah. And definitely... I'm excited to run you in Newsweek. It's going to be great. And it Absolutely. was so great to meet you well, also, Richie. Don't take Jason from us. Don't take Jason from us. <laughs> Thank you well, guys so much. Hey, offer me a sandwich and you got me. Because <laughs> yeah, seriously. Daily Caller doesn't pay good. me anything. We do not have any leverage here. Right? Yeah. This is not good. All right. Well, thank <laughs> you so much, Thank Matia. you so much. Much, guys See you everybody soon. like subscribe <laughs> you know what we do here go Peace. cats let's go cats baby Get out of here. look oh, no.